When investors, financial professionals, and discerning citizens need a big picture view of what's going on in the economy, they turn to John Malden, and for good reason. John has dedicated more than 30 years to keeping people informed about financial risk. John's a visionary thinker, a noted financial expert, a New York Times best-selling author many times over, a pioneering online commentator, and the publisher of one of the first publications to provide investors with free, unbiased information and guidance, Thoughts from the Frontline. John Malden is one of our go-to experts in the economic war room, a friend of many years, and he may be the hardest working man in the economics business, to borrow a phrase from James Brown. John, welcome back to the economic war room. I, I, I do work hard, but I'm nowhere close to the hardest working guys. I mean, first of all, there's you, but uh, I mean, I've got some people that are just crazy, that are friends of mine. and. Uh, I'm, I'm living in Puerto Rico now, so I do have a little bit more relaxed lifestyle. But you turn out some great stuff. And we've got three full segments on this show. We're, in fact, we dedicated the whole show. And in the first segment, I want to talk about, I'd like you to do what you do best. Help us understand the economic circumstances that we find ourselves in. How did we get from persistent inflation, low unemployment, but with low participation and so forth? How did we get here? Is the economy good like Biden says, or is it as bad as it seems to feel? Well, it's probably worse than it feels right now, because we've had the, what I called in my letter a weird recession. I mean, nobody feels like we're in a recession. The stores are open, the lines are full, uh, are, are, are full the malls are crowded. You know, you get on a plane, it's full. We had a statistical recession and a couple of data points that made it, you know, the two quarters negative and slightly negative GDP. This quarter has a real chance of being a positive GDP. GDP, we'll see what September comes in at. But I think fourth quarter and first quarter of next year will be negative. Um, and I think the first quarter, I think we've got one pretty big downturn uh, as people realize that the Fed is serious about this whole inflation thing. And so you ask how we got here. Right. We got here because the economy was softening in 2019, but the Fed was, you know, goosing it a little bit. So everything was pretty much okay. And then we had COVID. And, you know, all bets are off. Uh, we made some decisions early on that going back, we might not make today, but in the middle of the battle, uh, you got to decide where to charge. Um, and, you know, they were doing the best they can with very little information. And, and uh, it was, you know, and we, we didn't know how serious the, the flu was. We didn't, we didn't know anything. Well, the Fed put a and, ton of money. How much money did they inject into the system? Well, the, the, Fed, the Fed threw like six, seven trillion, but the, that's not that was all quantitative easing. That shows back on the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. Now it's it's um, the fiscal asset stimulus. inflation. So it makes it makes houses go up. It makes um, cars go up. It makes uh, I mean, especially when you go to zero rates, it, it makes stocks and everything go up. Uh, private equity, you know, all of that stuff. Everything bubble um, kind of thing. But but the the real inflationary punch, if you will, was the true helicopter money that the government threw at it. Now, the first round of $2 trillion was probably needed because, you know, the car was in the ditch, you had to pull it out. Um, the second round would have been, 
would have been a little bit less. But the third round, you have Larry Summers and a lot of uh, Democrats, including guys like me, and I'm not a Democrat, but uh, saying this is inflationary. That last two trillion we don't need, and it was passed on a you know partisan basis um, with every little um, you know joy that uh, the piece of uh, uh, junk they could throw in. And that filtered out because it was in an, it was in fact helicopter money. That's hot money. That got put in the hands of people who spin it. Oh, they rushed out. Uh, so so the, the Federal Reserve money doesn't doesn't go into the hands of people. So when Ben Bernanke back in 2002 was talking about helicopter money, he wasn't talking about quantitative easing at the time. He was talking about government helicopter money. And and when he says, well, we know how to you know create inflation. You just have helicopter money. Well, that's precisely what the government did. Now, the Fed aided and abetted. First of all, they should have been raising rates at the end of 20. But you could clearly see that they announced a vaccine. You could clearly see the economy was recovering. That's when you start raising rates, at least by the end of the first quarter. They didn't do it. They kept on with the quantitative easing. They kept their foot to the pedal. They kept us at zero rates. And then they get to June, you know, May, June, and they're like, oh, my goodness, we've got inflation. And it's not transitory. Um, and so now they're behind the curve and they're having to raise rates relatively rapidly in a softening economy, uh, which is not when you want to be doing it. Uh, they should have already done it. Uh, but we're so, told it's not a softening economy. People say, look at the labor market. We've got uh, low unemployment. But you've got comments on that. It, it, it is, really is a lot softer than, than the statistics show. Well, we, we in fact do have relative, uh, low, low unemployment by historical standards, but it's partially because of the way we measure them. Uh, and then... What we have is, let's just call it regional area location unemployment. We have businesses who are looking for skills. We have restaurants looking for, for, for workers, for, for waitresses and cooks and, and or waiters and whatever. Um, the, and we have a lot of people that dropped out of the job market. They're not, they're not getting paid enough to drive in from the, the outer, you know, into the suburbs because they're it's now costing too much to get there. They've got a job out in the suburbs. They've changed their lifestyle. They're not coming back. They're not they're not going to come back for twelve fifty or fifteen dollars an hour. They're going to come back at a price. Well, that price is inflationary. And so what we have is is you have headline inflation. So they, they try to take out uh, food and energy, but energy gets put into everything. It gets into, you know, it's the price of your transportation. It gets into the price of your widget that you buy because the widget making company has to use energy and they're paying more for it. So it costs them more. Eventually they have to pass that on. Um, and that's what, when, when economists talking about uh, uh, inflation gets embedded, it transfers from the transitory, if you will, energy going up and down, food going up and down into it gets put into the permanent uh, 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 sector of the services sector. So 
we're going to have to take a break here. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about this. I just had a conversation with Hal Lambert about energy being in everything and the risks that that could produce for our economy. We'll be back in a minute. John, before the break, we were talking about how energy prices get in everything. Does that mean we have persistent inflation that we'll have to address in the economy? Well, yes. But again, energy is something like 7% of the cost of, of production. So it's not monster in, in terms of what it is when we go to the gas station and we see inflation there. But, but it gets embedded in everything. Wages get embedded in everything. Um, we're seeing... And, and those wages and housing gets embedded in everything. For instance, one of the problems that the Federal Reserve has right now, and this is the way the BLS just figures inflation, is they kind of average, it's not quite dollar cost averaging, but they average in housing price increases. Okay, so if the cost of rent or the cost of housing goes up 10% in one month, it's going to actually show up over the next three to six months. It gets averaged out over time. So now, today, when we're in a, roughly this time period, we're seeing the prices of housing topping, we're seeing the prices of rental topping. The In the CPI that came out today, it was roughly 3% increase in housing. Because, not because it happened this last month, because it didn't. It happened four or five months ago and it's now filtering into the system. And they're gonna have that persistent overhang from housing for another three, four months at least. And so it's going to be difficult for the Fed to get inflation below 6%, let alone five. And this is why I think we have to be prepared to take Jerome Powell at his word. He says he's going to make inflation number one. If inflation is his job one, then you know the, the market's thinking, ah, maybe interest rates get to three and a quarter, three and a half. No, no, interest rates get to four, four and a half. A five handle on short-term interest rates is not out of the question because how long is Powell gonna continue fighting? Now, maybe he starts raising 25 bips rather than 75 bips. And so, and then maybe it's every other meeting but till they get inflation down under three and clearly on a path to two, I don't know how he stops. I mean, he, he can he can stop, but he can't retreat. What does a five percent interest rate do to our economy? What, what what would the pain feel like from that? Well, you're not old enough, but it would feel like 1981, 82. Oh, that's when I graduated uh, from college, right in that time frame. So it, 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 I do remember it. it uh, yeah, it's I, not, I mean, not fun. It was, it was, I mean, I remember borrowing money from my bank at 18% and feeling lucky to get it and using it to buy a train, little, little train car load of paper whose cost of the cost of paper was rising faster than 18%. So I could afford to buy it. Um, it gave me a discount and I was the, and paper was short back then. We had paper shortages. And so I had paper, I could get the printing uh, bid. This that's the business I was in back in my my late 20s and early 30s, um, you you just have to do what you have to do. What does that do to our uh, federal budget deficit? Because, I mean, we owe 30 point something trillion dollars. If you hit 5% interest and that rolls through, man, that's a, a trillion and a half dollars interest only. 
it's going to shape a generation. That's why I keep saying we could be in for what I call the great reset. We're going to have to figure out how to allocate because it won't be just $31 trillion that we're looking at sometime here in the next month or two. It's going to be 35 and $40 trillion in another three or four years. Um, and, you know, by the end of this decade, $50 trillion, just taking the CBO numbers and projecting them out uh, and, and adding in a plus 2%, which is very conservative considering what they've done over the last 40 years. You put in a plus 2%, you figure in a recession, because they assume there's never going to be a recession, and all of a sudden you're at $50 trillion. Easy. And so that 5%, that 4% on $50 trillion is $2 trillion, you know, one and a half, $2 trillion. And, and yeah, we can't afford that. So what that do we do changes from a everything. policy we have perspective? To re, we have to restructure. And, it, and, and I don't know how we restructure because we don't know who's going to be in charge of the uh, levers at that time. And that's why it's very, very important who we put uh, in the White House and Congress, uh, because there are two bad choices that we're going to be faced with. And it's much better to make the least bad choice, which I think is to raise taxes through, the, through a VAT, a value-added tax, rather than raise I mean, you, you can't raise income taxes enough. Literally, you just can't do it to, to, to balance the budget. You could raise a VAT. You could, uh, uh, in order to get that, you get them to, you know, lower uh, income taxes and, and some other things. You could come to a compromise. Um, but we're not going to cut uh, Social Security we're, uh, to any appreciable extent. We're not going to cut Medicare to any appreciable extent. You know, we could cut defense, but where, <laughs> when, yeah. um, the, the, we're going to have to just, you know, suck it up that we're going to have to raise money. And uh, that's not going to make conservatives happy. You're right. That's going to slow the economy down. Um, but it's better than slowing it down through increased taxes and all sorts of use fees and more regulations. I mean, it's like. You, I don't want to say pick your poison, but um, um, it is, it is, we've got, we've, the time for good choices was about 10, 15 years ago, and we didn't make them. Um, and so now we're just left with bad choices. Yeah, what I hear you saying is we need to pick the least of the bad choices and, right. and focus on that. And, in and by the way, there's going to be debate on that because some people think that more government is the least of the bad choice. Uh, and, and I happen to think that more government is the bad choice. Well, I, I tend to agree with you. We're going to need to take another break, and I agree with you 100% on that. When we come back, let's talk personal policy. How do we protect what we've got? What investment should we be considering? What will the future look like once we get past all this? Let's take a break, and we'll be back. John, these are tough times in the market. The economy, domestic, internationally, politically, um, we went from the everything is great, everything bubble to now there doesn't seem like a good, safe place to put money. Even the, the best of the worst ideas you lose to inflation. So what do investors do? How do we respond to this? Well, the 
problem that most investors have is they, they, they get in this binary conversation that's been basically taught to them by a generation, two generations now, of stockbrokers and investment advisors. You got, your choices are stocks and bonds. And, you know, are you bullish or bearish? Uh, well, you got to ride out the bumps, you know, all of that nonsense. Um, you have lots of choices besides index funds and stocks and bonds. By the way, uh, this is the first recession, bear market crisis, whatever you want to call it, that bonds have gone down at the same time that stocks have. I mean, there's been no place to hide. Normally, you you roll into to bonds and they increase in value and, and you've got some protection. And that's why the kind of 60-40 bond split that came in, it was just a volatility kicker. That's not That doesn't happen today. Today, though, there are lots of opportunities in the private market. There's lots of, even if you're not in the, even if you don't have that million dollars to get into the private market, there's ways that you can invest for private, for credit, uh, smaller smaller deals that'll give you four or 5% in, in the public markets, uh, especially today. Uh, the private credit markets, you can get eight, nine, 10% uh, on, on, you know, reasonable, reasonable risk to reward deals. Uh, there are tons of real estate options that, and funds that you can, I mean, private funds, the, the public funds have problems and have, and, and have volatility issues. But I'm, I'm a big uh, real estate fund. I'm a, I'm a believer in uh, high and growing dividend stocks. Um, you know, companies that grow their dividend every year for the last 20 years are probably going to continue to grow their dividend. Um, I mean, they've, they've got a pattern. You can sit and watch the underlying numbers. There are people that do that for you for not very much money. So you can uh, do that. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, doing what I call 80-20 investing, where you 80% of your money is your core. And you invest it to get 5%. Uh, and so you're going to grow it back to your original number plus a little extra you're 100% within four to five years. And then 20% is your explorer bucket. And you divide that up into, you know, you know, seven, 10. And you're taking a little bit more aggressive shots. Um, there are, you know, we have in my firm, we have opportunities. There, there are, each firm has its own set of networked opportunities, uh, some better than others. But there's a lot of opportunities to two, three, four, 10 times your money. Um, now, you don't want to put all your money on those things. You get, you know, 2% of your portfolio here, 2% there. Um, but you can get a, um, a nice portfolio of potential uh, uh, high flyers, but you have to be careful. You assemble it over a period of two or three years. You don't have to do it in two months. Right. Uh, and there's, there's things, but, but there are things that investors can do besides index funds. You, you were uh, the one who taught me. You said, friends don't let friends buy index funds. Can you explain that? Yeah, yeah that's true. Now, buy and hold. By the way, I have funds, managers that we invest in, that trade index funds. Index, tra index funds are the old joke. These are trading sardines. These are not, you don't eat these sardines. You, you trade these. Um, and that's what ETFs are. Um, ETFs are for, for are very very good trading vehicles, um, and you can 
you know, with momentum or whatever strategy you're going to use, you can, you can, you'll, you'll, you'll underperform the market on the way up, but you're, you're going to do considerably better on the way down. And your balance over time should give you uh, an outperformance. There's, um, if you have access to them, there's all sorts of trading strategies, hedge funds. I mean, there's a lot of things people can do that don't look like traditional stock and bond investing. Well, you know, when you first came in the economic war room, you gave us a couple of pointers. Number one, you said, be sure and have a risk budget. And when the market is going yes. up like now, take, take some money off and make that your risk budget. And that was brilliant. You also, uh, probably four years ago, uh, when we first started this, you also said, I'm, we're more likely to see a melt up than a meltdown. And you were, ex you and David Tice both said this, you came together and you were a hundred percent on target. We had a melt up. Well, and, and, uh, today we're seeing a meltdown. Uh, we'll see how it closes, but I, right now I'm pretty risk averse. Uh, if, if I think we're going into a recession late 23, I mean, late 22, early 23, then market's going to go down. Yeah. That's what happens in recessions. And, and a real recession, not this kind of fake recession we had here the last six months, but we'll have a real recession for a period of time. By the way, recessions are always over. It's good to buy at the bottom of, at the end of a recession. Those are good buy times. Um, you don't have to tick-tock the bottom. You can just say, okay, recession's over, let's buy. And then if you want to buy some index funds, you know, because we've taken them back to value funds now, they're no longer growth funds, they're value funds. Well, that's fine. Um, but they're trading vehicles, but, they're not buy and hold forever. Uh, you, you're, you're not buy and hold forever. By the way, if I'm saying it's okay to buy at the, uh, uh, you know, bottom of the next recession, and it will be, and you'll be able to hold for probably a good period of time, uh, but not forever. You you have to, you just can't go, you know, buy and go to sleep. You have to buy and either pay somebody to watch or watch yourself. Yeah. Uh, frankly, it's getting so cheap to pay, to get good managers to watch your money for you. I'm not talking about guys that are just, you know, dialing it in on a computer and every every client gets the same thing. I'm talking about people that really pay attention to your portfolio and to what your needs are. That's great. You know, John, you always give us great insight and you remind me of another John that I used to work for with what you just uh, said, Templeton. John Marks Templeton. Yeah, though no, he, he talked about, you know, to buy when others are despondently selling and to sell when others are greedily buying requires fortitude but pays the greatest potential reward. You've got that, that sort of wisdom going for you there in Puerto Rico. He was, he was just a few islands over in the Bahamas. Right. Well, uh, John, I appreciate you so much. It's great having you back to the Economic War Room. I'm, you, it's always good to be with you, Kevin. The, the only problem is we're not, we're not in the same town and getting ready to go eat Mexican food. Well, I look forward to doing that next time you're here. And I'm so honored to call you my friend. <laughs> You can learn more about John Malden at MaldenEconomics.com. And you can get a free economic battle plan of this episode at EconomicWarRoom.com. You know, it, it is an economic war. It's a domestic war. It's a foreign war. It's a battle just to get your money out of the market sometimes. And what we see as a marketplace, our enemies view as a battle space.
This is Kevin Freeman from the Economic War Room.